You're listening to the Royal Society of Medicine Digital Health Council podcast, where we explore health tech innovations that are transforming healthcare. With me, your host, Dr. Annabelle Painter. This episode features a discussion with Murray Allender, GP and CEO of eConsult. In our conversation, we discuss the introduction of asynchronous digital triage tools into primary care, how that accelerated during the pandemic and is now moving into secondary care. We cover how the adoption of effective triage is leading to new ways of working and the novel challenges and opportunities that presents, both in terms of managing demand in a more centralised way across primary and secondary care and the potential for more flexible working for clinicians. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Murray, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Annabelle, great uh, to have me on. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, um, could you please start by telling our listeners a bit about you? So, can you tell us about your background, your career, um, what got you to working in with eConsult, and a bit about eConsult's journey as well? Sure, no problem at all. So, I'm um, I'm a GP in. Uh, southeast London and have been a GP scarily for 18 years now I don't quite know how that happened um, but primarily inner city general practice and um, the origins of kind of e-consultant what we do now are we, we basically had a, a physical health practice in the NHS that we grew from one practice up to about 15 practices and um, but as as clinicians within that practice we kind of reflected on the fact that the model in each of those practices was the same as it always had been. So if you if you're a patient registered with one of our practices, we brought you into a building to be seen. Uh, you had that frustrating kind of 8 a.m. rush on the phone in order to book an appointment. And even when you got an appointment, we then dragged you into a building often two weeks later. And we, we just thought there must be a better way of doing this. So really, you know, that kind of led us into into this digital world that we now um, uh, inhabit and I like personally I've kind of done more and more of the e-consult thing over the last seven eight years and slightly less being a GP and that kind of I've got that balance now of still practicing clinically um, but most of my week is spent um, running e-consult which is um, yeah happy to tell you a bit more about that so it's I mean the idea behind e-consult is it's a way for patients to interact with their GP without coming into the building and we and we started like everyone does when you think of kind of remote interaction with a doctor everyone immediately jumps to video as a kind of this must be the way to do to harness digital the power of digital and we indeed tried video um but we found especially in general practice the the problem with video when you if you think about a kind of gp's morning when they're seeing 18 patients back to back at 10 minute intervals you've got the tech has got to work so slickly both at your end and at the patient's end in order to like stick to that 10 minute window and certainly what we found in the early days the broadband in most practices was terrible mm-hmm. and let alone at the patient end and at, you know so you'd spend the first two minutes of any consultation just trying to connect to the patient and I think you know that's kind of been borne out more recently in kind of evidence from the pandemic that actually video consults you know they can take as long as or sometimes longer than a face-to-face consult so we moved away from the idea of video and thought that maybe a better thing to do here is gather the story from the patient up front. So let's gather the history from the patient. Um, what, what are they presenting with, you know, whether that's a physical condition, a mental health condition, 
and then gather that information through a series of structured questions and put that in front of the doctor. And then the doctor, armed with that information and the patient's medical record, can decide what to do. And that's where we found that actually about 70, 80% of the time, you can close those consults without bringing the patient into the building, which is great for the patient, but also great for the clinician because there's some a, a time saving there. So that's the fundamental principle about what kind of e-consult is. And we've done that in general practice, but are now starting to apply that in other settings as well. Great. Thank you for that summary. That's really, really helpful. Um, I particularly like you talking about those insights about video technology, because I think um, we've seen that a lot during the pandemic. So mm. um, certainly when I was doing some research at Imperial about um, the use of digital platforms for consultations, the evidence um, very clearly comes that both patients and clinicians actually don't choose to use video consultations um, mm. and they given the option between video and telephone will generally choose telephone over video um, yeah. and I think that's really interesting because as you said I think when people first thought well let's move consultations digitally you think well let's do video because it's this yeah. and and I think that insight that actually people want um almost like the less technologically advanced option there because yeah. actually it makes for a better experience and then obviously you've taken the next step and actually turned um you know a telephone consultation into sort of asynchronous communication which yes, allows people exactly. to, to do it at their own pace when they want contact the practice when they see fit and then the, again the practice can contact them back as needed yeah. so talking about the pandemic um yeah. obviously <laughs> we saw a huge huge shift in the adoption of, of digital technologies across healthcare within the pandemic and yeah. um within primary care especially this move towards um you know, digital triage and asynchronous communication platforms. Um, yeah. You know, that was a that was a massive, very quick shift that we saw in primary care. And I'd love to hear your kind of story about what that looked like for eConsult and yeah. how how you feel um, that that went with from eConsult. Like what what went well? Um, what was challenging? And and what do you think you learned from that experience? Yeah, no, sure. I think um, I look, the, uh, people often say, oh, the pandem pandemic must have been the kind of making of e-consult. And I always say, well, actually, we were doing digital transformation for a number of years before the pandemic. Mm. I always describe the pandemic as kind of having just accelerated that digital transformation. Mm. So um, and definitely our experience. So we kind of took the, the e-consult had grown in, you know, when you get to about 2020, we were in about 1500 practices. Um, but it was an interesting dynamic because actually Practices who who buy a tech product themselves are often invested in that kind of transformation because they've they've made a decision to do something mm -hmm. actively. They're paying for a system and so they they actively use it. I think what had happened um, in the kind of years running up to the pandemic is the the buyer of these systems had become the CCG, which now now the ICS. And so actually, when as a GP, when something's bought for you you're mm -hmm. less invested in using it so you know a lot of practices were kind of like oh yeah i've got this thing it's on my website it's an online route for patients in to see me but i don't really know what it does and then what happened during the pandemic is actually they all kind of suddenly went oh right this is what e-consult does i get it because <laughs> actually suddenly they they needed a tool that allowed them to interact asynchronously as you've described and to do that entirely remotely without being in the same building. So a lot of practices, certainly during the early weeks of the pandemic, kind of discovered that they had this tool already and actually, oh, it was quite useful. 
And from the e-consult perspective, what that meant was we saw a massive leap in utilization. So we started, you know, we going into the pandemic, we were doing about 120,000 consults a month on the system. And that went up to 1.2 million in a matter of weeks. Wow. So kind of behind the scenes, we were having to do a lot of kind of technical work to you know, make sure the system didn't fall over, um, which it didn't, which was great. And I think, uh, and we also took a kind of deployment of the system from four weeks down to 24 hours. So we could get a practice up and running really quickly. And so I think that, so as I kind of said at the beginning, it, de it definitely accelerated the digital transformation. I definitely think now though, what we're seeing is that there's some practices that have come out the other side that really understand digital tools. There's still a lot though that kind of, you know, had to adopt this stuff during COVID, but didn't really have time to think about the, the transformation needed. And so now they're trying to have to kind of have to come back to that. Um, and and uh, so there's, there's still, I, you know, I'd still say there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of room for more that we could do digitally between patients and clinicians. You know, we're still, I always describe as being slightly in the foothills of this digital transformation rather than kind of, oh yeah, you know, we've all, we've all worked out how to do this now. There's, some practices have, but many practices haven't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, kind of in a few really interesting points within that. Like, I think th there's a clear distinction that you're talking about between kind of like the early adopter practices who yeah. are sort of really keen for technology, um, kind of willing to accept the challenge that comes with that and work with it. And then the uh, practices perhaps later on that adoption curve who um, maybe aren't so enthusiastic about the product and maybe need to be taken along the journey a little bit more and, and kind of helped with that system change aspect. So if we can yeah. focus on that for, for a second, um, because I think with any digital health technology, what's often overlooked is you can have a technology that's fantastic um, and really meets a need. Mm. But no matter how good that technology is, um, it has to be incorporated in the right way into the system um, to in order for it to work effectively in terms of the workflow, in terms of you know the clinical pathway, and in terms of getting buy-in from the clinicians um, and yeah. the patients using it. Yeah. So what would you say um, you've seen with the practices adopting e-consult and the kind of systems change um, that's helped with um using the product most effectively yeah no i think i think it's um i think the thing we're realizing is that actually you know this is really disrupting how that consultation between a patient and a clinician works mm -hmm. you know the uh, you know during medical school we're all taught that kind of this idea of a synchronous consultation where you're sat in front of a patient mm -hmm. and taking a history from them live in real time with them in mm -hmm. front of you and we, as you said earlier, we've moved to a kind of asynchronous model, which does take some getting used to. So, you know, you and some clinicians will adopt that more quickly than others. That's just that's just a fact. And also some patients. So, you know, we've definitely seen that some patients get used to this very quickly. And but more importantly, you know, the, the practices. And I think, you know, we'll general practice and the wider NHS is in a fairly difficult space at the moment. You know, it's struggling mm -hmm. to kind of that, that whole mismatch between supply and demand. And so actually you saying to a busy practice, hey, I've got this really good idea. This tool's really gonna help you. The practice have still got to kind of almost pause, stop and go, right, okay, yes, but I need to change my processes in order to integrate this. And many practices will be like, look, 
I'm, I'm actually just drowning in the day job. Mm-hmm, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that does, I'm sure that will help. It sounds really interesting, but I just don't have time. You know, I'll come back to it next week. And often that's what happens. So practices will, you know, they'll be receptive to the idea, but they're like, look, we're just too busy to change our processes. I've, you know, I'm three doctors mm. down today and the locum hasn't turned mm. up. You know, the reality of implementing is difficult. Um, and I do, but I do, you know, I, I think over time we're seeing more and more practices within kind of individual geographies. You know, once your neighboring practices really cracked it, actually it becomes easier. So, you know, I think over time, more and more practices will realize that actually, much as other industries have done, we're going to have to adopt digital tools in order to make the you know the system more sustainable. That's just a fact. And so actually, you know, and, and when your neighboring practice down the road has done it, and actually you're at a meeting with them and they go, oh yeah, actually we've, we're using this asynchronous tool that's it, it made, you know, it hasn't, hasn't <laughs> nothing the NHS is a busy place right so nothing's going to mm-hmm. allow GPs to sit back and kind of go oh yes I've got, I've got amazing work-life balance now but actually if it's made the job more sustainable and allows them to kind of manage their workload better then you know it will will get there but it does you're absolutely right what you can't underestimate the transformation that's needed to go alongside this technology to kind of kind of adopt it into everyday working practice that's absolutely true and critical and I think uh, perhaps to kind of give uh, to flesh out this with some examples, um, I do remember when I was working in the pandemic in general practice, mm. um, uh, which then introduced kind of a digital triage platform, the, mm. the practice was suddenly like, oh, wow, we've got like 200 of these coming in on a Monday morning. And what are we going to yeah. do with them all? And it was the kind of I think it's exactly what you're talking about, where they needed to kind of take that proactive step before and think, actually, we're probably going to need to have extra staff on a Monday and we're going to have yeah. to have people whose whole clinic list is actually working on these triage forms. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, this they, they managed to to crack that and actually just change yeah. the working patterns a bit. And once they did that, it, you know, it, it did work work better um and i know that other practices they're doing models like for example at a pcn level all of the e-consults get dealt with in one hub um yeah. whereas the practices don't uh, they would manage their say their phone consultations and um, as in the appointments that come in through the phone um and the e-consults are managed separately i wonder if you have any other examples of kind of innovative innovative ways of working or ways that people are managing these in, that's changing kind of traditional models within primary care Definitely. I mean, I think you've described two um, very articulately. Uh, so, I th- uh, and I think the certainly what digital does is it definitely kind of unearths real demand. I think mm. historically we were kind of mm. we were actually you know, we didn't really know what true demand was like because actually everything came in through the phone, and if you ran out of appointments on a Monday, you just tell patients to go back on a Tuesday, and all you were really doing was moving that demand down the week. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you do this digitally, you can kind of expose that real demand. And you're mm. right, as a practice, you have to then adjust your workforce um, in order to kind of put more clinicians on at the beginning of the week, slightly less on at the end of the week. I think, I mean, the other thing that we're definitely seeing in general practice is the wider use of the um, kind of R's roles, so these extended roles in mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. And 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 that look, that's definitely a good thing. Um, there is definitely a shortage of general practitioners. We can't use GPs for everything. That's definitely true. So the fact that we're introducing, you know, pharmacists, physiotherapists, mental health workers into that skill mix is actually a really good thing because, you know, certainly, you know, we we both understand general practice well 
you know, actually a, a musculoskeletal presentation is probably quite well handled by a physiotherapist. I think where digital really supports that is that if you can gather some information from a patient ahead of a consultation, it really supports the routing of that consult to the mm, right person. Mm. So it's almost essential to have digital triage if you're going to use these wider roles, because you can mm -hmm. then go, right, uh, all the kind of prescribing stuff, let's push to the pharmacist, all the MSK stuff to the physio. And actually you can then, you can almost save the complex patient with multimorbidities that, you know, get that to the GP, you know, and and use your the GPs for the, the stuff that they're really needed for. Give them, you know, 20 minutes, give them longer appointments to deal with it. Um, and, and as you say, the you know, the primary care networks that have then harnessed that. So you're then seeing that kind of use of those extended roles at a network level. Again, you know, online consultations, digital triage really supports that because you can then, you know, when we've seen, we've got a number of um, primary care networks we're working with um, that actually do this really well now. They've got a kind of a, a central team that will manage all the e-consults, um, a clinical team that can either be based in practice or some of them actually can be working remotely that you can then allocate work to. And actually that's a really, you know, that's a sustainable way of managing um, the, the kind of demand that's coming into general practice. So, but, and, and when I see that really working, I'm kind of op optimistic about the future because I kind of think, look, there is a way to do this mm -hmm. that's, that's better than the old way that does mean that we're using the, the, the kind of the clinician resource at the top of their license so making sure yes. that the right stuff goes to the right people so yes yeah and it's, it's definitely possible i i think that i think the point you're making about demand is so interesting and i i totally agree with you that i think um that the use of these kind of platforms has in some ways lowered the barrier that used to exist to accessing primary care because as you mm. said you know you, there would be the phone line and if once the appointments were full, once the phone lines were busy, there was there was no way really of getting through to GPs. And now you've had these con e consults or you know other um, mm -hmm. equivalents, and uh, you you can see people um, at, being able to access their GP in a way they didn't before. And I think that's been an interesting kind of eye opening experience for primary care to then work yeah. out what to do with that extra demand. Um, but I think it'd be worth moving on to something else you were touching on about kind of. Uh, using um the staff provision we have more effectively because this seems yeah. to be something that's um certainly from like an nhs essentially is putting more emphasis on um we can see suggestion in the new gp contract with like quaff benefits towards kind of system efficiency um uh, making sure that unnecessary appointments aren't being made etc and i think that's where um these kind of products really can add a lot of value um but one challenge in that is, I think, trying to make it work for everyone. I think there's this phrase in health tech that I think is powerful, which is it needs to work for everyone. It needs to work mm. for the users. It needs to work for the buyers. It needs to work for um, you know, patients, for clinicians, et cetera. And actually getting it working for everyone is a very difficult puzzle to solve. And I think this kind of technology Absolutely. is a really it's a great example of that, because you know, if we think about traditional kind of uh, technology development and mantras of like you know be really user focused yeah. delight the user and everything yeah. else will follow and yeah. when your user is your buyer i think that is simple to a certain extent right. but in the context yeah. of something like this where you have 
not only got multiple users, so you've got your patients who want to use this platform, you've got the clinicians who are seeing it on the other end, but also the buyer of the technology often is neither of those people. Um, And so could you talk us through that a bit and what your experience has been trying to juggle, uh, juggle that and sort of solve that puzzle? Yeah, I know you're absolutely spot on. It's a difficult dynamic, and um, and we have we have this debate internally a lot because you know yeah, a kind of very product driven approach, which is right, is you know focus on the user, but as you've said, you know you've got the patient and you've got the clinician, and how do you balance those needs because they're often not the mm-hmm. same. So mm-hmm. actually, you know, yes, uh, uh, you want to make for the for the patient user, you want to make general practice really accessible. But actually, on the other side, you've got general practice going, look, I can't handle kind of 24-hour access seven days a mm-hmm. week. I, how do I handle that? I haven't got the, the manpower. So um, we, I mean, we've kind of, we settle on about 50-50. So we have about 50% of the team focusing on that kind of patient user experience and 50% of the team focusing on the clinician user experience because we they're both important. Mm-hmm. You can't make something that's brilliant for the patient that is useless for the clinician. That's you know that's never going to work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with you. Though, the difficult dynamic we have is that third party in the whole mix, which is often the buyer, which is no longer the same. Mm-hmm. So and you know and, and and often these systems now are procured at a kind of integrated care system level, so they're bought on behalf of practices, and that purchaser might have different goals to either the patient or the clinician. So yes, often we find ourselves incorporating features and functionality that are kind of written into a specification that we kind of think that we're going to happen to do this to meet this specification, but we're not 100% convinced it's you know, to- you know exactly what the patient mm. or the clinician want. So, and especially when you're a kind of small, relatively small tech business, that's difficult, right? Trying to kind of balance the needs of all those different um, uh, kind of, you know, the purchase of the patient and the clinician. But that's, you know, that's the, it, it makes life more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and now, of course, eConsult is, is to add complexity to that further, is moving into secondary care. So, um, yeah, which is very exciting. So, so tell us a bit about that. So w- what is eConsult doing in the secondary care space at the moment? And how does that, how is that similar and different to, to what you've um, started doing initially in primary care? Yeah, so our work in secondary care is, um, is, I mean, effectively, you've got to think of it in the same sort of way. So we kind of thought once we'd done, achieved scale in primary care, you know, we were in about 40% of practices, we were doing about a million consults a month. Um, we kind of thought look, there must be this principle that we've got of gather history from patient, put it in front of the right clinician, that surely applies in a secondary care setting as well. So can we apply it in a secondary care setting? That was the kind of idea. So it's the same It's the same idea of this kind of asynchronous consultation, but applied across the breadth of the NHS rather than just focusing on primary care. And we, fu- we first did this in, in an A&E setting, um, and that was driven by um, a particular, it was an area in um, Southeast London that we're using our GP product quite extensively. And the urgent care centre at the time said, look, actually, can we apply some digital tools in the surgeon care center? It's kind of, you know, so you're not just digitizing one bit of the patient journey, you're trying to digitize all bits of the pathway, i.e. primary care and urgent emergency care. And so that was, you know, we, we then tackled that initially. And the, the way it works in an A&E setting or an urgent care setting is instead of, you've kind of got a patient who's in a building there. So 
what we have is a whole bank of iPads. So as a patient, instead of walking into an A&E and seeing a receptionist and then a triage nurse, there's uh, a, an iPad and or a whole bank of them. And because you can match your number of iPads to the peak demand, there's never a queue. So we, and urgent care demand is actually fairly predictable. So you always know your peak arrivals. So, and at the iPad, the iPad asks the patient who they are and then asks them why they're there. So effectively it's taking a history from them in that time as they arrive in the department at, at the, uh, in the waiting room. Then based on information, we can say, well, look, this patient sounds really sick, you know, chest pain, get them into the kind of resource area of the department. This patient less sick, they can go have an x-ray and wait in minors. And actually this patient isn't really sick at all. They could probably better be better served back in general practice. So it starts, it's doing the same kind of thing, you know, gathering a history in the patient's time and then serving up to the right clinician in the right setting. And so that we've now got that live in about 11 sites across the UK and we've got about another 11 or 12 going live um, over the course of the next few months. That's the kind of A&E bit. And then the third door, if you like, into the health system is into the specialists and outpatients. Again, you know, that journey from patient is referred to a specialist. Really, you could, well, why not gather some more history from the patient ahead of them seeing the specialist? Because that's surely going to add value to that interaction. And so that's what we're doing. Um, and we've got a big test bed out in uh, Mid, Mid and South Essex NHS Foundation Trust, where we're really taking 40 specialties so kind of really broad brush of outpatients and, and digitizing that journey. And by, by what I mean by that, that is, so that patient who's presenting into the cardiologist before they see the cardiologist, let's ask them a whole bunch of questions that are useful to that cardiologist. Because then the cardiologist can go, okay, actually, before I do anything else, let me order some tests, mm -hmm. some, order investigations. So actually by the time they definitively come to treat that patient, they've got a really good history. They've got the results of the investigations. And what you've done for the patient is you've saved the patient multiple trips potentially to the hospital. So again, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's seeing the value in this asynchronous consultation in different settings within the NHS. And that's really the, the kind of goal of trying to implement it in secondary care as well as primary care. And I wonder with this move now towards ICSs um, yeah. and kind of centralising um, more of the budgets to to wider regions, do you see these services amalgamating? So I'm I'm just thinking yeah. about how you're saying, you know, fundamentally there's not that much difference between urgent care and between primary care, and to a certain extent also um, outpatient secondary care. Yeah. Can you do you foresee a future where actually a lot of kind of uh, let's say access to the NHS goes through something like this and, and whether or not that therefore ends up in primary or secondary or urgent care depends on on perhaps a digital triage platform. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Annabelle that's absolutely right and that's that's kind of our ultimate goal is that um, I think the system historically thought in silos and we were slightly at risk, I think, of going down a, a digital into going digital silos as well. So general practice was buying systems for general practice. You know, uh, hospitals were buying systems for outpatients, and they're often buying different systems for emergency care. And it, what you don't want for patients is to make the digital landscape as confusing as the bricks and mortar landscape. So they mm -hmm. you know, they end up not knowing where to go. I, that's where I think the integrated care system agenda really works because 
actually, if we're moving to a system that's going to start to think about, well, actually, how can we get technology solutions that work across the breadth of primary urgent emergency and specialist care? Because ultimately, what and this is kind of what we want to do, and we're already starting to test this in some areas. As you say, you kind of want to join that up, right? So you want these these systems actually to be one, really one digital door. So as a patient, wherever you enter, so if you enter whatever part of the system you enter in, the system can start to sort you mm. and put you in the right place. Mm. That's, I mean, that's surely the future that we all want and need. So actually, if you're a patient who goes into general practice, but probably actually the system has picked up that you've got quite a few you know, suspicious features in your history that might indicate actually this, this, could, this could be a kind of some red flags for cancer within this. Let's direct you straight into the specialist. Mm-hmm, we can mm-hmm. tell that we we'll tell the GP what's happened, but actually this is like fast track into the specialist. Or the patient who walks into an A and E because they thought well, I'm never going to get in and see my GP. They've actually got a GP problem. Let's put that patient's case back into the GP's queue and say to the patient, "Look, rather than waiting here for 12 hours, you can go home, and your GP will ring you back later today." You know, so actually you're starting mm-hmm. to kind of you know, for the pa- for the patients, it's better because actually, no matter where they enter the system, they'll end up being managed by the right clinician. But also for the wider system, it's better because we're getting the right cases to the right clinicians first time. So that yes, ultimately, I think that's the goal, and that's where the kind of ICS digital strategy is hopefully kind of shaping up now. They're starting to think at a whole system level rather than the kind of siloed primary care versus urgent emergency care versus specialist care. So yeah, again, I'm optimistic about the future with that. Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> let's hope let's hope we get there. No, I, I I do think that that is that is the logical the logical um future of these kind of triage technologies, whilst also yeah. bearing in mind the, you know, the importance of maintaining continuity of care and and I don't yeah. think these need to be mutually exclusive things. I think you can do both totally at the same agree. time. Totally agree. So already within general practice we allow continuity digitally because as a, as a patient you can say we actually ask the patient is there a specific gp you like this to be you know dealt to deal with this mm-hmm. now if they say yes i'd like you know dr painter to deal with this we will then say to them okay you might have to wait a little longer because you know but but actually you're you're facilitating that continuity because i think you're absolutely right particularly in general practice continuity we know adds value to the system mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and also in many ways makes it more efficient i think if you're if you... absolutely exactly um, so changing uh, tack slightly, I just want to dig in a little bit into the actual technology that you're using um, oh. in terms of, you know, the algorithms behind eConsult and uh, questions about, for example, um, the validation and, and uh, you know, explainability. These things are often really important when it comes to um, you know, any digital health technology. Um, and there's a lot of talk about the use of of AI in yeah. um, in triage. Um, now, AI, obviously, depending on how you define it, can mean lots of different things. Um, yeah. But I'm interested in what your thoughts are as to kind of where what your stance is now as a company on the kind of algorithms you're using and why, and yeah. perhaps where you see that going in future, and what might be some of the oppor- opportunities and challenges in that. Yeah. Yeah, no, awful uh, lot to kind of unpack there, but it's a really rich and interesting kind of area to talk about. I mean, I think historically we, um, 
So we've built a system that uses kind of dynamic algorithms to gather a history, gather information from a patient, and then we put it in front of the clinician. So, and we've built up, you know, there's about 10,000 questions within our system. Um, we serve those up dynamically so that actually if you're a patient going down a certain path and it, you know, it reveals that actually you've got a temperature, we'll ask you questions relating to that. Now, we've done over 35 million of these consults. We've got an in-house kind of clinical team that oversee the governance of that. So actually, it's, you know, it's, we, it's taken us a lot of time and energy to build a system that actually we believe is very safe because, you know, underneath that, there's a lot of flagging. So actually, if a patient sounds quite sick, we can push them off into kind of urgent care if they were going into general practice. And that, that took a long, many years of kind of evolution. However, if you take a step back, you know, it, it's not a, we're still leaving the kind of intelligence, the, the decision making with the clinician. Mm -hmm. And that's really, that actually for us, that's quite key because we were taking um, clinicians who were very used to the synchronous interaction. You almost can't leap to an AI system that's going to make the decisions for you. Mm -hmm. So kind of consciously, we were going on a journey with the clinicians where we've got them used to this idea of, Look, we've gathered a history from you, but you're still deciding what to do. And and this, I think, is where the kind of the future and, and adding, starting to add an intelligence really adds, can add value potentially. So I'm uh, definitely part of our strategy is to start to think about how we incorporate forms of artificial intelligence into our platform. But we're kind of, you know, we're bringing the patient and the clinician, all those users we talked about, with us on that journey. And so an example of that might be, um, we're now gonna, with the system, we're starting to understand what clinicians do with a consultation. So mm -hmm. we can start to know that actually if a, if a patient presents, say, with something like hay fever in general practice, the, the GP will always kind of go route to pharmacist, mm -hmm. you know, rightly, right? Because actually a pharmacist can deal with this. So over time, as we start to understand what the GPs are doing, we can actually start to go to them hey GP you've sent the last five of these to the pharmacist do you want us to do that for you next time mm. click click yes and so actually and over and then over time actually you just automate that so mm -hmm. kind of but you can only really do that if you've got enough data to start to mm -hmm. understand the behaviors of those clinicians and I think that's what that's really the really exciting bit I think for the future is we can kind of as we start to understand more of how patients are presenting in and how clinicians are then treating them, we can start to then use some of the intelligence that we know will, you know, will make the system um, more efficient, you know, and the, and the NHS more sustainable. So that's, you know, that's that's some of the work we've started doing, which I think is really exciting and um, again holds a lot of hope for me for the future. And I suppose there's also a question in there about kind of uh, customizing the product as well, because um, yeah. not every ICS or PCN or practice will have the same provision of say pharmacists or physios Agreed. or any professional and even if they do they might be seeing a slightly different case mix in that practice um, yeah. and it's interesting to hear how you can kind of uh, pick up on behaviours of perhaps an individual practice or area and say you know you did this last time is that something you want to do again and almost make yes. that uh, bespoke for them which is which is really interesting um I'd love to talk to you more about that but I'm, I'm conscious about time so I just want to get <laughs> on to one, one final topic which is about how do you see this technology changing 
the kind of ways of working for clinicians. So what I'm thinking about here is, um, you know, you were talking earlier about how there are, are central hubs. You mentioned that some of your um, the, the clinicians are dealing with those remotely. Um, yeah. Do you see this changing the way that clinicians m- may be able to work to offer them more flexibility, for example, working um, asynchronously, working abroad, yeah. even working, uh, working remotely? What where do you see that going in the future? I mean, I definitely think there's a, a huge opportunity here to um, a, a make the kind of helps help solve the workforce crisis within the NHS at the moment by maybe tapping into resource that thinks it can't work in this very rigid way. Um, so, you know, we're no longer constrained by, as a GP, you have to go in to be in your surgery at eight o'clock in the morning and you don't leave that building till nine o'clock at night, which we know still happens, right? Mm. But actually, if you can offer, and certainly we do this in some of our practices, if you can offer a GP a mix of both a couple of days in the practice, seeing patients face-to-face, and a couple of days working remotely, where they can actually be very flexible about their working hours, so they can you could do a kind of whole triage session, um, you know, at, at 9.30 after you've dropped your kids at school or, you know, actually after you've looked after your sick parent, you could go and do some triage late at night. So I think and we have to be more flexible for the workforce mm-hmm. in order to retain them. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely offers the opportunity as well to tap into a workforce that is perhaps, you know, has drifted overseas. We've definitely we've got some examples of that. We had a, a GP who post Brexit. Her husband had to move to Greece. She wanted to carry on working within the NHS. So we were like, yeah, I'm sure this is possible. So she, and still you know, four years on, she still works for us within the NHS from Greece. We kind of had it checked out by all the kind of, you know, the various regulators in both countries. Uh, we can make the tech work and access the, you know, the, the core clinical system easily from there. And actually you have then tapped into a kind of wider workforce. Now, we've done it in general practice. Clearly, look, apply that to a secondary care setting as mm. well. And you can start to think, well, actually, the same thing applies to specialists. You know, actually, in an area that is underserved by, I keep coming back to cardiologists for some reason, but, you know, <laughs> you, you've got, you know, actually, we can harness a, a, a you know cardiologist in Newcastle to deal with a backlog that's greater in London, for example. You know, actually, so, and and this isn't for all the work, right? But actually, if you can gather, you know, that kind of there's a there's a cohort of patients that we know in general practice can be managed remotely. And the same is true in, in specialist care. So you could start to kind of have a much more flexible workforce um, that can work from different locations, that can work in different time zones to suit them. And that actually then is about building a much more um, sustainable workforce for the NHS, which is really important. You know, we need to stop you know, the training NHS doctors and then having to go overseas. And this is potentially a really good way to do that. Yeah, I think, you know, already there's models working in other specialities like radiology, Mm. where overnight, um, say, for example, in A&E departments, um, emergency scans are actually reported by doctors in other countries. And I don't think logically uh, that couldn't be applied to many other areas. And it would be interesting to see a more kind of perhaps globalised healthcare workforce. um, Agreed. Totally agree. Exactly. Very exciting. Well, yeah, well, at a time where there's a lot of negativity about workforce and about work conditions and obviously yeah. got a strike going on yeah. at the moment. Um, it's good to hear some optimism about the future for the workforce. So thank you, Murray, for that. Pleasure.
Cool. So uh, thank you so much, Mari, for joining us today. It's been it's been such an interesting conversation. And um, yeah, it's given it's given me a lot to think about. And I'm sure it has for our listeners, too. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been great to chat to you.